Thank you. Really appreciate that. Yeah, as I say, thank you for praying for me. I know many of you have. Some of you I've known for a long, long, long time. Um, Some of you I've met through Men's Breakfast. Some of you I've not met before. But thank you for being willing to come out on a cold December night and listen. And as I was thinking through, as I was praying, God, what do you want me to share tonight? In in some ways, this will be a passage that many of you will know really well. But I don't want you to shut off. Because I think God may still have some stuff to teach us through this. And in some ways it connects in at the back end of what you've been looking in the morning services. But also as you look forward into this kind of Advent Christmas season, as we look to share God coming, um, this may connect a lot of things together. Um, What I want to do is read a passage. It's a passage from... um, Well, Jesus has been preaching the sermon. Uh, It's an amazing sermon. It's a sermon we call the Sermon on the Mount. But it's really just Jesus on a hill. And he's at the top of a hill so that people can see him. And he launches into a description of what life is meant to be. And really, it's a teaching session for his followers, for his disciples. And he's got, as we know, these kind of 12 main followers... Um, And he probably got a load more hangers-on. And not only that, he's got the crowd that have been following him. And this crowd has been getting bigger and bigger, which is why he needs to be on a hill so that they can see him. So really, it's a message for followers, but it was also for the crowd who were listening in, going, what's this guy really all about? And at the end of chapter 4, he's been healing the sick, He's been delivering people from demons. He's been preaching the good news of the kingdom. And by the end of chapter 4, there are large crowds from all around the region following him. And they're they're looking, they're going, is this rabbi, is this teacher just like all the rest, or is he something different? And as they see that he's something different, although they haven't quite worked out who he is yet, uh, his popularity has started to grow. And we get to this passage, and if you're following it in the Bibles, uh, eight, page 810, um, or it's up here. Um, and it's this famous passage at the beginning of chapter 5. And chapter 5 to chapter 7 of Matthew, um, Matthew chapter 5, it's more than just a sermon. This is Jesus' kind of raison d'etre, it's his reason for being, it's the fundamentals of the kingdom of God. This is more like Jesus who said, okay, guys, this is what it means to follow me. This is what you've got to sign up to if you want to follow me. He's saying other rabbis may say this, but I'm saying this. And by the end of this kind of two or three chapter sermon, the crowd are amazed. They're blown away. Because what Jesus was saying was different and it was unique and it was spoken with power and authority and passion and life. And really it's more than just a sermon. It's, it's Jesus' statements, his opinions, his views on the issues of the day. Marriage, divorce, murder, theft, Revenge, promises, the place of the law, prayer, fasting, giving, worry, judging, the kingdom of God. 
And we, sh- and we, as modern day followers of Jesus, we shouldn't pass those by too quickly. I think they stand a test of time in terms of behavior of the kingdom of, of the people of the kingdom of God. So what he was saying was radical, but it wasn't entirely new because it was a culmination of a lot of the things that the prophets of the Old Testament had been saying. And as I said, the people were left astonished. But at the beginning is this picture that we know so well. And if you've been in church for any length of time, you'll have heard this statement. You are salt and light. Two pictures of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And so we're going to look a little bit more deeply at these pictures. Um, So, let's read it. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled afoot. You are light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Right as we start, notice, guys, notice it says you are. It doesn't say you should be, it doesn't say you could be, or if you work really hard, you can be. It says you are salt of the earth. You are light of the world. Already, he's saying you are these things. And that, that, would, have, that would have smacked his followers between the eyes, just as he said it. Wow, so you're saying I, I am salt of the earth, I am light of the world? It's interesting, those of us that are, you know, us Christians, we often think of Jesus being light of the world, and and he is, but Jesus here is saying, no, you guys are light of the world. So, So why would he, why would he compare his followers, why would he compare you and I to salt and light? Well, I think there's a few things. The first of all, just, just think about salt for a moment, um, and maybe think of salt in an individual context for you for a moment. What does salt do? Well, the first thing salt does is it, it flavours. Now, we think that, f- that salt adds a flavour. But if you ask any chef, any chef goes, no, that's not what salt does. What salt actually does is enhances flavour. What it does is draw out the flavours that are actually there. That's what salt does. But we just think of it, oh, chuck a load on our fish and chips and it'll be great. But what it does is draw out the flavours of the fish. It draws out the flavours of the oil. And when you put salt on food, it draws out the flavour. And that's a really important distinction. Jesus is, Jesus is saying, look, you're like the salt, and what you're meant to be doing is enhancing flavour. We're not meant to just be going somewhere and adding a little Christian flavour. That would almost be too easy. What we're meant to be doing, salting the food and bringing out the life that's already there. 
I don't know if you've ever thought of it in this way before. We tend to think, oh, we'll just go and we'll add our Christian flavour. We'll walk into the pub and we'll have our drinks and we'll have our chat and then we'll add a little God talk in there. Now, actually, what we're meant to be doing is enhancing and bringing out the flavours that's already there. You know, we might think we are the sole providers of what's good and right and just in the world. But you know what? This is still God's world. And love and joy and peace and hope can still be found in God's world. But maybe it needs us to draw it out. Maybe in your schools or your workplace. Maybe our job is is to draw out the good that's already there. Because it's God's world. Salt doesn't take away flavour. Salt's not meant to overwhelm. Salt is meant to enhance and draw out. And you don't need much. Did you, did you know the sea? The sea is about 3% salt. But of course it tastes really salty, doesn't it? You don't, you don't need much to overwhelm. And I think the first thing Jesus is saying here, you're, you're salt of the earth. You're meant to be drawing out, enhancing what God has already put there. Just, and this might be unusual for church, just turn to the person next to you for a moment. Talk for 30 seconds or less. Have you ever thought of it like that? Have you ever thought that your job is actually meant to draw out the good stuff that's already there, rather than go in and blast your way into a situation. Just turn and talk to people for a few seconds. Okay, just draw your discussions to a close. Stay seated where you are, because there'll be another question in a moment. You see, yes, salt is meant to enhance flavour, but it also does something else. Um, What salt does is stop the rot. You see, before freezers, salt was used to keep food from spoiling. Food spoiled very quickly in, in the hot Middle East. What was good quickly became bad. And you know this, you probably know this from school, that if you want to stop food from spoiling, you can throw it in the freezer or you can cover it with salt. If you lay salt all over it, bacteria cannot grow. The rot cannot set in. And as well as enhancing and drawing out the good, what we're actually meant to be doing is stopping the rot. You know, we can read the newspapers, we can read online, we we can see the news 24-7, and we can see society rotting. So whilst there's good in society, and I really believe that, and it's God's world, and we're meant to draw out the good, we also hold in tension the fact that parts of it are rotten. And what we're meant to do as salt is we're meant to stop the rot. But that means being involved. It means being on top of. You can't have salt in a jar and hope that it stops the rot on the fish over here. It means getting involved. The call of Jesus 
at this point was he was saying to his disciples, look, if you're salt, part of what you've got to do is get involved in the messiness of life. That's scary for us. Often as Christians, we want to back away from the tough places. We want to step away from the darkness. We, we want to avoid the difficult things of life and the messy things of life. We don't want our children to play with those sort of kids in case they get contaminated. But in order to stop the rot, we need to be involved. We need to be skin on skin. Maybe the real mark of a disciple, as Jesus said, was that ability to roll up your sleeves and to get hands-on with the mess of life. In fact, that's one definition of the incarnation, the long theological word for what's going to happen in a few weeks' time, or what we celebrate in a few weeks' time, where God became man. God rolling up his metaphorical sleeves and entering the mess of humanity, getting his hands dirty or bloody. And, and that's not easy. It's not going to be easy for us as individual Christians or as a church to get involved in the messiness of life. But it's what it takes to stop the rot. Uh, it's got to be a few months ago now. If, in fact, even 18 months ago now, I was coming out of um, the city world in Ipswich and walking back to my car late at night. And I heard this voice that just said, have you, have you got any change? And I, I stopped and kind of turned and looked, and in the doorway was this guy huddled up in a sleeping bag. And um, I stopped. And if I'm honest, part of my mind was, oh, I don't want to give him any money. I know what he'll spend it on. Da, 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 da. Part of me just wanted to get into my warm car. And then part of me thought, no, I'll just stop. And, and I, I sat down next to him, and I said, hi, my name's Matt. I said, do you want to tell me your story? And he starts opening up, and his, his name's Chad. And um, Chad said, look, he said, I've been here all day. You're the only person who stopped to talk to me. He said, I don't really want the money. I just want the conversation. And we started talking and sharing and sharing. And he was sharing with me that what he has to do is he has to um, earn, this is his words, he has to earn 25 pounds a day by begging because then he can go across the road to Jack's Cafe where above Jack's Cafe they've got rooms by the night and so if he earns 25 pounds he can have a room for the night and a hot shower in the morning breakfast in the cafe below and then the cycle starts again and he has to earn 25 pound a day to do this cycle and if he doesn't earn that he sleeps in the doorway for the night and so we started chatting and talking and I was sharing with him what I did and he was genuinely interested in what I did. He just wanted conversation. And um, uh, he called somebody over and his, this girl came over and this was Michelle, his girlfriend. And, and we just had a really long conversation. Actually, I was kind of a bit disappointed after about an hour where I said, look, I've really got to go home now. And, and I gave him my, my business card. I said, look, here's, here's my number. And I said those... Faithful words, if you ever need anything, give me a call. And we all do that as Christians. 
I'll pray for you. If you ever need anything, give me a call. Well, he took me up on it. And he kept calling me, kept texting me. Oh, have you got, can you help me with this? Da, 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 da. And I got duvets and pillows and sleeping bags and money and drinks and da, da, da. And eventually I helped him through the benefit system and, and um, he got, he got uh, a flat. Um, him and Michelle got a flat. And do you know, it really touched my heart the day I got this text which said, Matt, we're in our flat. And we want you to come round for dinner. We want you to be the first person to come round for dinner. And I was like, oh. And my heart just... And I went round for dinner. And really, it was just a takeaway that they'd got from somewhere that they put out on the table. And, and, and I was part of what... Now, I just want to say there's no great, great good news story at the end of this. They didn't go on an alpha course and become Christians. You know, a few weeks later, they'd lost the flat because they hadn't managed to pay the rent, because they'd spent it on alcohol. And just before Christmas last year, Michelle died of pneumonia on the streets of Ipswich. Um, and and that's, that, I say that story just because that's what we're meant to be doing as Christians. We're meant to be getting involved in the rot of life. And I don't mean they're rotten. I mean the rot of life. Uh, we're meant to stop the bad things. We're meant to try and roll up our sleeves and get dirty and get messy. And there might not be a great holy solution or a, or a good news story at the end of it. But that's what we're meant to be involved with. I just want you to turn and talk to people next to you for 30 seconds. When was the last time you rolled up your sleeves and got messy? Can you think of a situation? Can you think of a person or a family or a something that you did and this is in no way to judge you if you haven't it's just to get conversation going when was the last time you got dirty hands and bloody hands as Jesus did and got involved with the mess of humanity just turn and chat for a moment Okay, again, just draw your conversations to a close. I, I, know, I know you won't have had much time to share, but maybe that could be something that you do in your small group this week, you know, your home groups as you meet together. Maybe you can continue those discussions. So you probably get it. You're probably like, yeah, Matt, I kind of get the enhancing flavour thing and, and I kind of get the stopping rot. I know that's how salt's used. But interestingly, there was a third way that salt was used in the Middle East of Jesus' time. So when he says to them, you are salt, they're thinking enhanced flavour. They're thinking stop the rot. But they're also thinking something quite strange. They're also thinking... An offering. Now, now in New Testament times, salt was really precious. In fact, sometimes soldiers, Roman soldiers, were actually paid in salt, which is where we get the expression, you're worth your salt, or they're worth their salt. That's where we get that expression from. Because salt was really precious. And always and forever, valuable things can be used in worship to God. Always and forever. From the perfume of the anointing woman to the two copper coins that the woman put into the bowl. When you have something of value and you offer it back to God, it becomes worship. 
When you have something of value and you offer it back to God, it becomes worship. And so for these, for these New Testament followers and disciples, they're going, they, there's something deeper in this salt illustration. Because tantalizingly, back in the Old Testament, they spoke of a salt covenant. Now, you may or may not know, covenant is kind of like a promise. It's deeper than a promise. It's more binding than a promise, but just think promise. There's kind of this salt covenant between man and God. You've probably never heard a sermon on these passages before, but every offering of your grain offering you shall season with salt. You shall not allow the salt of the covenant of your God to be lacking. And again in Numbers, all the heave offerings of the holy things which the children of Israel offer to the Lord, I've given to you and your sons and daughters with you as an ordinance forever. It is a covenant of salt forever before the Lord with you and your descendants. There's, there was something, and it's not fully explained in the Bible, but there's something to do with a covenant between man and God that was sealed with salt. In fact, there's an old Middle Eastern saying, which is, there is bread and salt between us. It means there's a relationship that has been confirmed by sharing a meal together. When you share a meal together, it's like there's been bread and salt between us. We're now connected. In fact, according to ancient customs, there was a bond of friendship established when you ate salt together. And it seems like there's this... We all, we all understand kind of a blood covenant from the Old Testament. Abraham and Isaac and right through to Jesus on the cross. We understand. But there's this salt covenant. It seems like... A covenant between God and man was sealed with blood. But the covenant between man and God was sealed with salt. And so interestingly, for these hearers of Jesus, they're going, okay, this is a big deal here. When Jesus says, you are salt of the earth, this is a big deal. There's a, there's a covenant connection between God and man. It's like Jesus is in the middle holding man and God together and saying, you're salt, there's, there's a deal here, there's a covenant, there's a relationship going on here. You're salt of the earth, said Jesus. And therefore, like living sacrifices, we're offered back to God. And you know that, right, don't you? You know that when you became a follower of Jesus, when you became a Christian, when you became a disciple, you handed yourself over to him. Lock, stock and barrel. All your dreams, all your hopes, all your relationships, your money, your house, your car, everything was handed over to God. Which is why the most somber bit Verse 13 of Matthew chapter 5. If salt loses its saltiness, it's good for nothing. I hope that makes you sit up and take notice. Jesus says, you are salt of the earth, but if you lose your saltiness. Wow, that's a challenge, isn't it? 
Now, I want to be clear. He's not talking ultimate salvation here. That's down to Christ's work on the cross. But he is challenging his disciples about their life here on earth right now. He's saying you can't bind yourself to God and call yourself a follower and then live as if life doesn't matter. When we think of salt in a salt cellar on our table, we think, well, how can that lose its saltiness? Well, it can't really, sitting in a pot on the table. But New Testament salt wasn't like that. New Testament salt wasn't chemically manufactured. New Testament salt was found and quarried from the lakeshore. It was picked up in the desert regions. In fact, it is quite soluble. You know, if water got into it, if dust and dirt got into it, the salty effect was lost. In fact, that's why they couldn't even throw it back on the fields because it would just ruin the crops. It had to be thrown into the streets. And this is kind of a powerful picture. Jesus is saying, look, if you are salt of the earth, I need you to enhance the flavour of stuff around you. I need you to get involved and to stop the rot. I need you to form a covenant relationship with God in worship because this is a serious deal. Being a disciple isn't just about coming to church on Sunday. It's not just about a great Christmas service and then come January, never seen again. And I know I'm preaching to the converted here, but it's true for us too. It's a real danger. Are we, are we in danger of losing our saltiness? Jesus is warning his disciples here. He's saying you can't look back to the world and kind of keep half a grip on the world too. He's saying you've given everything over to me. Do you remember the story of Lot's wife back in Genesis? where she looked back over her shoulder at the world, at what she might be giving up, and she was turned into a pillar of salt. Now, you might be sitting there, and you might be thinking, okay, Matt, I'm looking at the time, and you haven't even touched on light yet, because it's salt and light, and you've got eight minutes to go, or whatever. Uh, and you might be thinking, okay, that's a bit nice. I've learned something about salt. But, but what does it mean for us right now? Well, in many ways, it means to us what, exactly what it meant to the disciples at the time. Are you, and is Bradfield and Ralph Baptist Church, known for being a church that enhances the flavour? Wherever you go, as individuals and as a church, do you bring out the good in the people you meet? Do, do you bring out good in this community around the church? Do you bring out good in the places you live? Do you bring out love and peace and joy and hope and forgiveness? Those good things of God's world, do you bring those out? It is Bradfield and Ruffham church known for being a church that stops the rot. Where you see an injustice, where you see pain, where you see hopelessness. And people go, do you know what? If Bradfield or Ruffin got involved, that would change. 
Uh, are you known for being a church that rolls up your sleeves and gets your hands dirty? I remember a church is only made up of people like you and me. So are you known for rolling up your sleeves and getting dirty? Are you a church that's known for a worshipful, covenantal relationship with man and God? You know, just as I close this bit, before I briefly talk about light, you know, I spend a lot of my time going and meeting church leaders and challenging them about our society and perhaps how detached they are from our society. I don't know how interested you are in Generation Z, our young people that are coming up, or millennials, and some of you are millennials sitting out there now. I don't know how interested you are in those labels and what they might mean. But just as a little cultural statement, do you have any idea, any idea at all, how fast the nuns are rising? And when I say nuns, I don't mean a freaky horror movie, the nuns are rising. That would be exciting. I mean nuns as in N-O-N-E-S. Where people are given a form and said, what faith are you? What religion do you follow? And they tick, none of the above. Do you have any idea how fast they're rising? In about, in, in roughly speaking, in 1940, there were about 5% of people in the UK who ticked none of the above. 1940, about 5%. 50 years later, in 1990, it was only 8%. So it's only risen by 3 4% in 50 years. But then things start changing. In 2008... It was 15%. 2012, just four years later, it was 20%. 2014, 25%. 2016, 44%. Now, we're still waiting for the results of 2019 survey. The 2019 survey, they estimate about 75% of the UK population will be ticking none of the above. That means two out of every three people that you meet on the bus, that you stand at the queue with in Tesco's, that you go to the garden centre and meet, whatever you do, two out of three are going to be going, I'm none of the above. You know, most people out there, they haven't decided that Jesus is untrue. They just don't know enough to make a decision. In effect, they're functionally, theologically illiterate. And this is what I'm trying to communicate to our church leaders. In fact, to quote Apatus, which is a, a kind of a world-changing uh, Twitter account, this was the quote on there a couple of months ago, the largest truth is it's years since I even cared. And that's the voice of our world right now. And so we're called to be salt into that, to enhance the flavor of what's already out there. But that's not enough. We've got to roll up our sleeves and stop the rot. And in all of that, we've got to show that through a covenantal, all-or-nothing relationship with God. Now, in our last two or three minutes, there was this second illustration, wasn't there? Light of the world, city on a hill. And I wonder if at this point Jesus is now talking a lot more plural 
to his followers. And Jesus talks a lot about light. You know this. He talks a lot about light. You know, when because light and darkness are kind of really obvious things and very opposite things. Did you know if you light a match in total darkness, that match can be seen a mile away? It doesn't take much light to pierce the darkness. And Jesus is saying to his followers, look, you're meant to be light. When somebody's lost, you're meant to be showing the way. This word light that he uses is a word a bit like kind of beacon. It's a word a bit like kind of a lighthouse sort of word. It's this word that this lighthouse sweeping out. This is the picture he's trying to give. This picture of this is calling us home. This calling people to a safe place, but also warning them of danger. And he says, that's what we're meant to be. If we're salt and we're light, we're warning of danger and we're directing people home. There are people in our workplaces, people in our families, people in our classes, people in our football clubs and our drama clubs who hate their lives. There are neighbours next door to us who perhaps have not seen somebody else for a week. There are lonely people who will not meet another soul on Christmas Day. There are colleagues who struggle. And we're meant to be light calling people home. And the obvious thing about light, whatever form of light, whether it's a torch or a lamp, it's useless if we cover it up. It's useless if we duct tape over it or put a bowl over it jesus is saying look i've saved you so that other people's lives would be better if you were a part of it you didn't receive god's blessing to keep it to yourself and that's why he says that end bit where he says he expects he expects our light to translate into good deeds so that other people can see God in heaven. Now, again, listen carefully. He's not saying, oh, goodly, we need to work hard to achieve salvation. That's not what he's saying. That's fully accomplished by Jesus on the cross. But most of the people out there, the nuns who know nothing about church and Jesus, they don't understand our gospel yet. They can't see our theological certainty yet. What they do see is the expression of the gospel that flows out of us. What they do see is the light in us that is shining. God made you so that your other people's lives would be better because you're in it. And interestingly, interestingly, 2,000 years ago, they didn't have torches. They didn't have a light switch that they could flick on. You know how they got light? They got light by fire. And the great thing about fire is you can borrow some and take it over here and you don't diminish what's there. I can take a stick and make a flame and move it over here and this fire keeps going. It's great like that, but I can start a new fire, which is what Jesus is saying to us. When he's talking about light, he's talking about a candle and a fire and an oil lamp. And it's easy. It's probably easier 
to share the light than to hide the light. And that's the story of the early church. Once he shared this in Matthew, and I've just come to close now, the bunch of people who travelled with Jesus, who did life with Jesus, who started the church that we read in Acts, it was done by them being salt and light. But just as I end, another thought. What happens when you have too much salt? Too much salt actually is a poison. I know when I was a baby, they gave me too much salt in my feed, me and my twin brother, and, and our kidneys stopped working. We were on dialysis for years. Too, too much salt is a poison. It harms and, and it can kill. You know, when you put salt on, on fish to stop the rot, you don't eat it like that. You brush it off. And when light becomes too much, when it's ultra-focused, and you narrow it down, it becomes a laser, and it can burn, and it can cut, and it can destroy. And we need to be careful. As we go out, and as we want to be salt and light, let's just be careful that we don't become too much. Be careful that we don't become a poison. When, when Jesus called us salt and light, What's interesting is he doesn't say that's how we'll be known. We won't know, be known for being salt. We won't be known for being light. A new commandment I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you are my disciple if you love one another. I'm just going to pray. Father God, I pray that you will take my words tonight, take your word and implant it in our hearts. Help us to be salt to the people we meet, to enhance flavor, to stop the rot, even if it involves getting messy and rolling our sleeves up, and to do it all out of a covenantal, loving, desperate, worshipful relationship with you. And help us to be light, Father. Help us to be light that warns of danger and pulls people home. But Lord, we know we won't be known for that. Above all, help us to be known for our love for one another.